Good morning to you all and, and welcome out here to uh, Christendom College. It's great to be with you this morning. Uh, there'll be two parts to my talk uh, with you this morning. First will be a brief reflection overview of the importance of history and the church's view of why history is so important. The second part I would like to make it an examination of the thought of Dr. Warren Carroll, whose memory we honor today, and how his work as a Catholic historian embodies the view that had been promoted by uh, the Catholic Church. I would like to start off with a quotation taken from a great Catholic writer and essayist, Gilbert Chesterton, in his book, The Everlasting Man, one of Dr. Carroll's favorite books. Also, I might add a book which C.S. Lewis listed as one of the top 10 for every undergraduate to read. Chesterton writes, right in the middle of all these things stands up an enormous exception. It is nothing less than the loud assertion that this mysterious maker of the world has visited his world in person. It declares that really, and even recently, or right in the middle of historic times, there did walk into the world this original invisible being about whom thinkers make theories and mythologists hand down myths. The man who made the world. That such a higher personality exists behind all things had indeed always been implied by all the best thinkers as well as by all the most beautiful legends. But nothing of this sort had ever been implied in any of them. It is simply false to say that the other sagas and heroes had claimed to be the mysterious master and maker of whom the world had dreamed of and disputed. None of them had ever claimed to be anything of the sort. The most that any religious prophet had said was that he was the true servant of such a being. The most that any primitive myth had ever suggested was that the creator was present at the creation but that the Creator was present at scenes a little subsequent to the supper parties of Horus and talked with tax collectors and government officials in the detailed daily life of the Roman Empire, and that this fact continued to be firmly asserted by the whole of that great civilization for more than a thousand years, that is something utterly unlike anything else in nature. It is the one great startling statement that man has made since he spoke his first articulate word instead of barking like a dog." End quote. Very Chestertonian. <laughs> so the first part of my topic, on to that. Why history, the church's view. This is a particular area which, like so many other academic areas, has suffered profoundly from what many of our popes in our times and our present reigning pontiff have called the crisis of faith. The great apostle of the Gentiles, St. Paul, wrote in his letter to the Galatians, when the fullness of time came, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. What this rich passage is telling us is that all of history was directed in some way to that moment when God's son became a man. This, of course, is the central mystery of our faith, the Incarnation. And of course, the more one really reflects on that mystery, that great mystery, the more it really boggles the mind. What does it mean to have eternity dwelling in time? 
to have omnipotence dwelling in weakness, to have the hand which fashioned the entire universe now feebly reach out and try to touch his mother's face. The Jews, of course, were guided by revelation from the Latin revelare, to draw back the veil. It was a supernatural act by a god who acts in history. The Greco-Roman world was guided by reason, which, although part of the natural order, finds its source also in God. That Greco-Roman world, through its study of nature, was able to come to a knowledge of truth, beauty, wisdom, virtue, and even a knowledge of God as prime mover. So I'm always amused when people say, we're falling back into paganism, Magari. <laughs> I wish that was the case. <laughs> in the study of history, God's providence is found, and it is found preeminently in sacred history. That is, in God's special covenant with the people of Israel. But it is also found in the classical civilizations, particularly that of Greece and Rome. For again, as St. Paul tells us, God's Son comes in the fullness of time, indicating that there had been a certain level that had been achieved in human culture which made that time ripe for the coming of the Son of God. In a certain sense, those three civilizations, Hebrew, Greek, and Roman, are united in the great redemptive act of our Lord. This is seen in that proclamation which Pilate placed on the cross, bearing witness to our Lord's messianic identity. In chapter 19 of St. John's Gospel, we read, and I quote, And bearing the cross for himself, he went forth to a place called the Skull, in Hebrew, Golgotha, where they crucified him, and with him two others, one on each side, and Jesus in the center. And Pilate also wrote an inscription and had it put on the cross. And there it was written, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews therefore read this inscription because the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Hebrew, in Greek, and in Latin. The chief priests of the Jews said therefore to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but he said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. This proclamation of our Lord's messianic identity as the king of the Jews was written in both Hebrew, Latin, and Greek. So in a very real concrete sense, those three civilizations are symbolically present and united in that death. And it's important to remember that nothing presented to us in the gospel is there by accident. These streams of thought were caught up and developed by the church as she contemplated the great mystery of the incarnation. The fact that God himself had entered into time by taking our human nature, not only elevated human nature, but also gave time itself a new significance. The church, for example, in developing the canon of the New Testament, implicitly reveals the importance of history and the keeping of historical records. This is found particularly in the canon of Scripture, for it relates to us the story of the God who entered into time and so entered into history. This is seen in a special way in the four Gospels, 
which although not strict history, at least in the 19th century German understanding of history, are nonetheless strictly historical. As the Second Vatican Council teaches us very clearly in the great dogmatic constitution, De Verbum, particularly sections 18 and 19. This historical sense of reporting the historic truth of the great events of our salvation as found in the life, the passion, the death, resurrection, and the ascension of Christ is clearly seen in the writings of the evangelists and also in the writings of the apostles and their co-workers. They wish to remain in their writing perfectly faithful to historical fact. For example, St. Luke, writing as a historian, tells us in his prologue explicitly that he followed up all things carefully, focusing upon the certitude of the words that had been handed down. Let us remember that St. Luke is also author of Acts of the Apostles, which set down the early history of the church and was part of the canon. St. John tells us that he wrote of what he had seen as he stood at the foot of the cross and saw his master's side opened with a lance, writing in John 19.35, and he that saw it has borne witness, and his witness is true, and he knows that he tells the truth that you also may believe. St. Paul, for his part, exhorts his beloved disciple Timothy to be attentive in his teaching, for he is not teaching fables like the pagans. Cautioning him, avoid foolish fables and old wives' tales, and train thyself in godliness. Keep the good thing committed to thy trust by the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. And warning that in the last days, they will turn away from hearing the truth and turn aside to fables. St. Peter, writing in his second letter, says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. St. John in writing in his first letter, tells us that he writes about and notice the sense of historical reality, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our own eyes, which we looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life that was made manifest. And we saw it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal light which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you." End quote. Now the church, ever faithful to the tradition of the apostles, which finds its very source in Christ himself, in her life continued to bear witness to the importance of history and time into which the grace of the Savior was to be channeled through his church. Here we see a heavenly stream of grace and doctrine flowing from eternity into time. As he himself promised us and his church before he ascended, behold, I am with you all days, even unto the consummation of the world. The fathers of the church, such as Irenaeus, 
bear witness in their writing to the importance of history and church tradition, the handing down. We also have the testimony of ecclesiastical writers, such as Eusebius, Theodoret, Socrates, and Sozomen, who devoted themselves diligently to the writing down of church history. The diligence of so many of the early Christians to keep historical records, and many of the Holy Roman Pontiffs, such as Pope Damasus I, who sought to write down and preserve for us the acts of the martyrs. All of this reveals the church's solicitude for history and for historical writing. But it was the great St. Augustine who first tackled systematically the question of the Christian philosophy of history in his masterpiece, The City of God. This book was and is of paramount importance for it gives the Christian philosophy of life and the understanding of history. There are more manuscript copies of The City of God than any other book in history except for the Bible, which indicates the importance and the esteem that the church has always held for that tremendous work of genius. Now that work, of course, was initially undertaken as an immediate response to the pagan accusations following Alaric's shocking and savage sack of the eternal city of Rome, claiming that Christianity had weakened the manly virtues of the empire. Augustine initially took his pen in hand to respond to that accusation. But of course, he was too profound a thinker to be content simply to deal with such a superficial accusation against Christianity. He began to treat of larger questions, such as justifying God's actions to men, and then probing the relationship between human history and eternity. Augustine developed the well-known concept of the two cities, the city of man and the city of God. As he writes in his famous passage, and I quote, there are two loves, therefore, that have given origin to these two cities. The first is self-love in contempt of God unto the earthly. And this self-love creates the earthly city or the city of man. The other is love of God in contempt of oneself unto the heavenly, and this is the city of God, the Civitas Dei. Now for Augustine, the earthly city is driven by pride, ambition, greed, and expediency, and it seeks to exalt itself, to become an absolute and to be eternal. The city of God stands in stark contrast with this, for the city of God is governed by humility, self-sacrifice and obedience to the divine will. Augustine says, this is the only true and eternal city. But these two cities for Augustine are distinct, and yet they are commingled in time. And they struggle with one another for the possession of the heart of each human being. And it is this struggle within each individual person that makes up the essential core of the historical story. This deeper dimension was only hinted at at the great historical writers of antiquity, such as Herodotus, Thucydides, Tacitus, and Plutarch, and others who viewed history as a font for instruction in human virtue and as a guide to wisdom on how to properly run the affairs of the state. But the classical authors held that history held no ultimate meaning. For they generally held, according to St. Augustine, 
that history moved in a cyclical pattern. In history, there were endless cycles and continuous repetition, devoid of progress and therefore devoid of any lasting meaning. St. Augustine refers to this position as impious and abhorrent due to the fact that it failed to acknowledge the central event of all history, that is, the Incarnation. This pagan view does not allow history or life itself to have any ultimate meaning. He writes in the City of God, and I quote, Christ is the straight way by which the mind escapes the circular maze of pagan thought. Let us follow Christ our right way and leave the circular maze of the impious. End quote. In startling contrast to the cyclical vision of time, Augustine teaches that Christianity offers a linear pattern. Time has a beginning, creation. It has a unique and unrepeatable event, that is the incarnation. And it has an end, the parousia, or the second coming of Christ. Now, Rome, our church, has proclaimed St. Augustine to be the special patron of Catholic historians. And I would like now to turn our attention in a more concrete way to the teaching of Rome, which is so important for our topic today. The great Cardinal Newman knew well the importance of history and the power of the historical argument, particularly in his essay on the development of Christian doctrine. Newman also knew clearly the importance of Rome, which united two key strands of thought that I had mentioned earlier. Jewish thought, guided by supernatural revelation, and the thought of Greece, represented by their contribution in the area of rationality and philosophy. After the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, which also witnessed the decline of the academy in Athens, interestingly enough, Newman writes in his idea of the university, and I quote, so pass away the ancient voices of religion and learning, but they are silenced only to revive more gloriously and perfectly elsewhere. Hitherto they came from separate sources and performed separate works. Each leaves an heir and successor in the West, and that heir and successor is one and the same. The grace stored in Jerusalem and the gifts which radiate from Athens are made over and concentrated in Rome. This is true as a matter of history. Rome has inherited both sacred and profane learning. She has perpetuated and dispensed the traditions of Moses and David in the supernatural order and of Homer and Aristotle in the natural. To separate those distinct teachings, human and divine, which meet in Rome is to retrograde. It is to rebuild the Jewish temple and to plant anew the groves of academia." End quote. One of the pivotal documents issued by the papal magisterium is Leo XIII's letter, Saipe Numero Considerantes, which is a letter on historical studies. It was issued back in 1883. The brilliant Papa Pecci, Leo XIII, was a Thomist, and we rejoice in that, who found rest and relaxation by composing Latin verse in the Vatican Gardens. What a way to chill out. <laughs> Let us recall some of the key achievements of that pontificate. He was the pope who issued Eterni Patris, what led to the great revival of Thomistic learning. He was also the pope who issued Rerum Novarum on the restoration of the social order. And also, he issued Anum Sacrum, in which he consecrated the entire human race 
to the Sacred Heart of Jesus at the very dawn of the 20th century, an act which he called the greatest act of my pontificate. Now, in his encyclical on his historical studies, he's essentially responding to a crisis of truth, that's what he calls it, in which certain historians were twisting and distorting historical truth in an effort to attack the church, the Holy See, and the Roman pontiff. The Pope in his encyclical speaks of certain men who are unjust and dangerous, his words, who let themselves be guided more by hatred of the Roman pontificate than by the love of truth, which should characterize every scholarly inquiry. He stated that this was a matter of great importance which calls forth the wisdom of the church as she engages in historical discussion. The Pope then fingers a number of key historical errors, and I quote from his text. Often mutilating or obscuring the prominent features of historical events, they choose to pass over in silence what was glorious and memorable, while at the same time they redouble their attention to discover and exaggerate whatever has been done rashly, whatever has been done amiss. Though to avoid everything of this kind is beyond the powers of human nature, they have even gone so far as to scrutinize with perverse sagacity the doubtful secrets of private life, thus seizing and putting before the multitude, ever eager for scandal, whatever was most likely to afford them a spectacle and give them an occasion to scoff. This attack upon the truth leads these men to present the church as if she is the enemy of human progress and the enemy of civilization." End quote. He points out that many times these historians focus their assaults upon the Roman pontiff. He laments that these machinations, these men, have deformed the art of the historian into what he calls a conspiracy against truth, end quote. For the object is of history is always the discovery of what is true, and he writes, these opponents of the light of historical truth have even introduced these difficulties into schools. He continues, it is a wicked thing knowingly to deceive and to turn history into a deadly poison, and this is far more severely to be condemned in Catholics. He again laments the fact that even in his day, there were Catholics who had abandoned the Catholic vision of history. And so he writes, and I quote, what a capital evil it is to make history subservient to the interest of parties and to the passions of men. For, in, for it, well, is well in this, it well can, in this case, sorry, can no longer be what the ancients called it, a teacher of life and the light of truth, but the approver of vice and the slave of corruption. He then gives what can only be called a clarion call to Catholics <clears throat> to advance the study of Catholic history and how important and how true these words ring today, as Dr. Carroll was very much aware. And so he writes, Therefore, it is of very great importance. Provide against such an imminent danger and see that the art of history, which is so noble, be no longer made the instrument of great harm, both public and private. And then he gives an exhortation. Upright men who are well-versed in this branch of knowledge are required to undertake the writing of history with this view and for this purpose of showing what is true and genuine and that the insulting accusations too long accumulating against the pontiffs 
may be learnedly and becomingly refuted, end quote. He then calls forth men of wisdom who will exercise mature investigation and will oppose these rash assertions and who will form prudent judgments. And he recalls that the first law of history is, I quote, not to dare to utter falsehood. The second is not to fear to speak the truth. And moreover, no room must be left for the suspicion of partiality and prejudice. He speaks about the need of the Catholic historians to begin to write history in such a way that the study of history will be extended and will be provided to young people. He says this work is indispensable and it is a labor worthy, quote, of the greatest intellects. He says, in the past, the greatest of men have done this thing. And he points out that the study of history is closely allied to the sacred, more to the sacred than to profane things. That is why he says, it has always been studiously cultivated by the church from the very beginning. He then calls to mind the great Saint Augustine and says, hold him as your patron. The abandonment of Augustine's vision of a Christ-centered view of history leads many historians into a multitude of errors because they neglect a real knowledge of the causes of things. Now this teaching of Pope Leo XIII was again forcefully affirmed by Pope Pius XII. And blessed John Paul II, also a great man of history, in his rich magisterium, continually made reference to the importance of history, its study, and the writing of history. In his message for the 50th anniversary of the Pontifical Committee for Historical of Sciences, John Paul wrote, and I quote, Moreover, scholars who are believers know that in sacred scripture of the Old and New Covenants, they have an additional key to acquiring a proper knowledge of mankind and the world. It is through the biblical message, in fact, that we learn about the most hidden aspects of the human condition. Creation, the tragedy of sin, redemption. In this way are defined the true horizons for interpretation, within which we can understand even the most hidden meaning of the events, processes, and figures of history. He continues, God's revelation to human beings happened in space and time. Its crowning moment, the incarnation of the divine word, his birth from the Virgin Mary in the city of David during the reign of Herod the Great was a historical event. God entered human history. We, therefore, start to count the years of our history from Christ's birth. Remember, CE stands for the Christian era. The foundation, sorry, the foundation of the church through which Christ wanted to pass on to humanity the fruit of the redemption after his resurrection and ascension is a historical phenomenon, the Pope tells us. The church herself is a historical event and thus a priority subject for historical science. Many scholars, some of whom do not even belong to the Catholic Church, have devoted their interest to her making an important contribution to working out of her earthly events. So the Catholic vision of history is the story of the great interplay of God's providence and man's free will. Augustine points out clearly to us, and the church is taken up as teaching and made it her own, 
that God is the unchangeable governor, just as he is the unchangeable creator of mutable things. He orders all events that occur as part of his providence. As Augustine observes, and I quote, until the beauty of the completed course of time, of which the component parts are the dispensations adapted to each successive age, shall be finished, like the grand melody of some ineffably wise master of song. So in a very real sense, in our study, there is mystery in history. There are shadows in history. We cannot fully understand everything because the meaning which is found in history is found as history moves towards its consummation. And Augustine tells us that it is only when we come to the end of time that everything will then become clear. Then we will see fully the meaning of history as we witness the triumph of the city of God. So Augustine eliminates all the pagan deities from history. Farewell to Tyche and Fortuna, fate, chance. They have no place because the Christian God is truly the Lord of history. He's the creator of all things, including history and time. All happenings are under the control of his providence. And so again, to quote from Augustine, God can never be believed to have left the kingdoms of men and their dominations and servitudes outside the laws of his providence. So he is the Lord of history. He controls it and through his providence overrules the intentions of men and achieves his purpose. And so from history as well as from revelation, we can discern some knowledge about God and his love, which in his great mercy is chosen to reveal us in time. As Pope Benedict XVI, of course, everyone knows was a great fan of St. Augustine, teaches us, and I quote, history in fact is not in the hands of the powers of darkness, chance, or human decisions alone. When the evil energy that we see is unleashed, when Satan vehemently bursts in, when a multitude of scourges and ill surface, the Lord, the supreme arbiter of historical events, arises. He leads history wisely towards the dawn of the new heavens and the new earth. There is consequently a desire to affirm that God is not indifferent to human events, but penetrates them, creating his own ways, or in other words, his effective plans and deeds. The nations must learn to read God's message in history. The adventure of humanity is not confused and meaningless, nor is it doomed never to be appealed against or to be abused by the overbearing and the perverse. This attitude of faith leads men and women to recognize the power of God who works in history and thus to open themselves to the feeling of awe for the name of the Lord, end quote. I would now like to turn my attention, the second part of my talk, to Dr. Warren Carroll as a faithful exponent of this Catholic vision of history. A little bit of background about Dr. Carroll. After graduating from Bates College in Maine, he went on to earn his PhD in history from Columbia University. He was chairman of the history department at Christendom College, which he founded in 1977, serving as its president until 1985. Since the holy year 1975, he had worked on his magnum opus, a six-volume set of the history of Christendom, of which the first volume, The Founding of Christendom, was published in 1985. The second volume, The Building of Christendom, published in 1987. 
the third volume, The Glory of Christendom, published in 1993. The fourth volume, The Cleaving of Christendom, was published in 2000. The fifth volume, The Revolution Against Christendom, was published in 2005. And now in 2013, his final volume, The Crisis of Christendom, has been published. The entire project for his six volumes on the history of Christendom was dedicated to his beloved wife and, and I quote, whose bright example and unceasing prayer brought me the grace of faith and membership in the Church of Christ. And we're delighted to have Anne with us today. Anne, would you stand and be recognized up in the balcony? And will be with us today to sign uh, the new and final volume of her husband's work. In fairness, I should point out that the last two volumes, five and six, were the joint works of Warren and Anne Carroll. Dr. Carroll is also the author of numerous articles and other books, including Our Lady of Guadalupe and the Conquest of Darkness, The Guillotine and the Cross, Dealing with the French Revolution, Isabella of Spain, The Catholic Queen, The Last Crusade, which deals with the Spanish Civil War, and the rise and fall of the Communist Revolution. I would now like to try to set forth briefly Dr. Carroll's understanding of the Catholic vision of history in his own words, bearing tribute to his memory as we honor him today and celebrate the completion of his six-volume history. When he was asked, what is Christendom? Dr. Carroll simply responded, it is the reign of Christ. And for the Christian, the reign of God refers to the reign of God recognized by men. And although it is true much of what God does in history is invisible, his kingdom is not of this world, yet there is a wealth of material which is public and historical. And Dr. Carroll observes that Christendom is, and I quote, a social, cultural, and political presence in the world. It is an entity which grows with courage, profession, prayer, and example and fades with timidity, indifference, and apostasy, and lack of holiness. He would frequently lament, with, not without a sense of humor, that our college's name, which he chose in the modern world, not only cannot be defined, it can't even be pronounced uh, anymore. <laughs> it was his goal in his work to tell the full historical story of Christian civilization, quote, from its preparation through its birth, growth, climax, division and its retreat, but always, he says, that the student might be more ready for its coming resurrection. Talk about a man of hope. It was important for Dr. Carroll that the proper history of Christendom should, first of all, not just concern itself with the institutional church and clerics. The church, of course, he observed, is the most important, but the true historian of Christendom would blend both ecclesiastical and political history. Ecumenism, properly understood, is also an important point for Dr. Carroll, not an ecumenism which would abandon convictions in truth for what he called superficial and meaningless agreements, but developing an ecumenism built solidly on real conviction and truth. When speaking of the Catholic vision of history, he said, and I quote, this is his view, this history, talking about his work, the history of Christendom, this history is written by a Catholic from a Catholic perspective with the conviction that Jesus Christ founded a church and that the visible church he founded is the Roman Catholic Church, which through its succession of popes in particular has remained, is, and always will be his church. 
and through which he acts in a particular way, not available to members of most of the separated churches, notably in the Holy Eucharist, by which he becomes really present on the altar at Mass and reserved in the tabernacle. But he has other sheep, not of the visible Catholic fold, members of his church through baptism by water or desire. Many non-Catholic Christians have served Christ well, indeed better than a great many Catholics have served him. Their services are included in this history. He observes, Christendom, the idea and reality of a Christian public order, has been historically a much more Catholic than Protestant concept and undertaking that has echoes and reflections among many of the separated brethren, most notably in the Eastern Orthodox churches. One of the reasons Dr. Carroll decided he wanted to write this book was that there was no history of Christendom written in the English language in the 20th century. The closest he says you could come to was Henri Daniel Rope's work, which was written in French, but it lacked extensive footnotes and also was marked, he said, by an anti-Hispanic bias, which Dr. Carroll stated, quote, undervalued and misconceived that heritage which represents one half of the Catholic Church speaking Spanish and Portuguese, end quote. His goal was to seek to unite a vivid narrative with thorough scholarship, with extensive notes at the end of each chapter. He did acknowledge that the majority of the citations in his work were drawn from secondary sources, and he made use of the work of modern historians. Primary sources from certain periods, he said, and I quote, are used occasionally, especially where there was a strongly converted point, but they are clearly in a minority. The reason for this, he observed, and I quote, was that the scope of the work itself was so vast for any one man to master all primary material that this would not be reasonable expenditure of time, effort, since so many scholars have painstakingly and conscientiously tread and investigated these, end quote. He also sought to highlight in his work the work of modern scholarship in each volume by giving a full bibliography at the end of each volume. When speaking of historical objectivity and the fact that he made the slight use of social, economic, intellectual, and institutional history, he brings up the point, and I quote, the task of the historian is to prune down and weed the mass of raw material in order to get a coherent presentation. He states, obviously, that all historians use principles of selection for what is relevant to their general and particular task. A key point of his thought, however, is the recognition that all historians, quote, have a worldview which affect the choices made by the historian. And he observed, any historian who would suppress evidence bearing on his subject and conclusion commits a grave dereliction. But to screen out irrelevant information is a duty and an essential part of the historian's craft." End quote. He states quite openly that honesty demands that the historian state what his worldview is. And he decries as an heir, quote, that the history of religion is objective when written by those who don't believe in the religion they are writing about, and biased when written by a religious man. He observed that rejection of religious truth is an intellectual position, as is the acceptance of religious truth. And he points out that both the believer, non-believer, clearly have a point of view, that both can equally be tempted to bias. It is through their objectivity that they are capable of overcoming that bias. He strongly believed that objectivity does not derive from having no point of view. 
He states, obviously, history cannot be written without one. And continues, objectivity does require honesty and respect for truth always. Other opposing views are presented in his works, but always in service to the goal to, quote, present a Christian view, not a non-Christian view of the last 5,000 years. When dealing with the question regarding social, political, and non-ecclesiastical institutional history, Dr. Carroll states unambiguously, as a Christian, his interest is in persons, which he emphasized. He acknowledges that persons, of course, are very much affected by social institutions and social structures and economic conditions, but maintains that always the person is ultimately metaphysically independent of them. He is not their creature, but God's. Christians do not see man as primarily shaped or dominated by extrinsic and nameless forces, structures, and trends. The drama of human life, he says, is primarily comp composed of personal thought and action, above all by the working of the will. He does recognize in his work he focuses upon great men, great events, and chronology, but still recognizes the importance of intellectual history as achievements of the mind. And occasionally, he says, he would introduce intellectual history into his volumes whenever possible. But he expressed a hope that someday another scholar would take up that task. And although it's unfashionable, Dr. Carroll also firmly believed that a good history should be a good story. It should be dramatic. And he observed nothing is as dramatic as the life of Christ. And so his volumes provide us with a synthesis of history from a Christian viewpoint. And he offers great encouragement to young scholars to try to resurrect the art of Christian historiography. In conclusion, I would mention to you, in his final volume of his History of Christendom, he gives a series of appendices in which he speaks of the basic principles necessary for the writing of Catholic history. There are six of them. Principle one. The first principle, which he speaks of, is accepting and hailing the supernatural. The reality of the supernatural as a factor in history is something crucial to a Catholic vision of history for Dr. Carroll. And artificially ruling out such a part, an invention in history, does violence both to faith and to reason. And I offer one brief example taken from an essay which he wrote speaking about Lenin. This is from an essay that he wrote. Few specific human actions in all history can have been more gratifying to hell than the deliberate sending of Vladimir Lenin across Germany in a sealed railway carriage to arrive at Petrograd's Finland station on April 16, 1917, with consequences whose magnitude of evil is already gigantic and whose end is nowhere in sight. It was an act to make the very angels weep, and one may speculate that it was not coincidence that less than a month later, the mother of God, end of sorrows, first appeared to three children in the rustic remote hills of central Portugal near the tiny hamlet of Cova de Ira. And two months later, on July 13, 1917, today's date, by the way, still well before Lenin's November triumph in Russia, she told the children, quote, I come to ask the consecration of Russia to my immaculate heart and the communion of reparation on the first Saturdays. If they listen to my request, Russia will be converted and there will be peace. If not, she will scatter her heirs throughout the world, provoking wars and persecutions of the church. 
The good will be martyred. The Holy Father will have much to suffer. Various nations will be annihilated. In the end, my Immaculate Heart will triumph. The Holy Father will consecrate Russia to me, and it will be converted." End quote. The second principle is seeing all history as religious and or political, and that these are the primary motivating factors which are to be found in history. Social and economic history, very important, but subsets to political and religious. The third point is coming to acknowledge that the popes acted in history and indeed as the vicars of Christ have an irreplaceable role in human history since history is made again by persons and not by nameless, faceless trends and forces. The fourth point is seeing the impact of the saints as great individuals in history. And he refers us to likes of Catherine of Siena, Blessed Carl of Austria, Saint Joan of Arc, as outstanding examples of key individuals who impacted their time. The fifth principle he speaks of eliminating bias in the writing of history. And he uses examples taken from the pontificate of Alexander VI and also the Galileo case. As an example of writing bias, with bias, he mentions Remy de Rus's five-volume Apologia for the pontificate of Alexander VI, a tough pontificate to defend, as an example of being driven by bias, especially when he contrasts that with the work of Dr. Ludwig von Pastor in his history of the popes. He also talks about the need to mention certain events in history, such as Pope Stephen's trial of Pope Formosus, in which the previous pontiff was disinterred, placed on trial as a corpse, his hands severed and his body thrown into the Tiber River. The last point, six, that he mentions is that Catholic historians should take for their inspiration the legacy of Triumph Magazine, almost forgotten today. Here he movingly gives tribute to L. Brent Bozell, Jr. and the philosopher Frederick Wilhelmsen. He speaks of the challenge to modernity which Triumph magazine really represents, encouraging many to read the book. The timeliness and prophetic insight of Dr. Carroll can be seen in my final quotation with his assessment of our current age and what has happened to Christendom. In an article he wrote back in May of 1972 entitled, The West Come to Judgment, he writes, and I quote, therein lies the central lesson of what has happened to the faith in our time. We have learned, or should have learned by now, that Christianity cannot be sustained indefinitely by private devotion alone, but only by public commitment to the building of an explicitly Christian, social, economic, and political order. Christians of the West have tried the other road, the easy road, of putting Christ first only in church or in the privacy of their home and of their own thoughts. It has not worked. The enemy they would no longer confront in the streets and the squares, the marketplaces, and the hall of government is now invading those sanctuaries of the home and the church to steal the children of merely private Christians and make them adepts of the secularist world order." End quote. All of us here today owe an enormous debt of gratitude for the life and the work of Dr. Warren Carroll. We owe him gratitude for his faith, for his scholarship, for his fidelity, for his life, and for his work.
for his courage and for his vision, which have now, thanks be to God, become part of our own patrimony. Praise be Jesus Christ, now and forever. Thank you very much. God bless you.